All right, church, you can go and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me to the book of Colossians. We've been studying through the book of Colossians verse by verse on Sunday mornings for several months now, and we're going to start in on Colossians chapter 3 this morning. So Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. But uh, let's bow again for a word of prayer and just ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Lord, I keep thinking of the truth we just sang about, that we go in faith, our own great weakness feeling. Lord, as we come to talk about spiritual things as we come to lift our eyes to the cross as we come to consider who you are and what you've done for us lord we are so aware of our weakness of our weakness in explaining it of our weakness in presenting it of our weakness in feeling it of our weakness in believing it lord we are dependent on you every step of the way lord and so we ask that you would show mercy to us this morning uh, lord i pray that uh the, the layers of of um inattentiveness, the layers of callous that have built up, Father, that in grace you would strip it away from our hearts, that we would come to grasp something of the, the grand truths that Paul's speaking about here today. So Lord, we ask for your help, we ask that you'd open hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, church, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and to just remind you, Colossians is of course a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was a prisoner. Now, uh, he wasn't a prisoner the way we normally think of it. In other words, Paul wasn't a prisoner in that he was wasting away in a jail cell somewhere in Rome. What the Romans would often do is they would take you and they would put you under house arrest. And that's the position that Paul was in. So he is in Rome. He's forced to rent his own apartment. He's forced to buy his own uh, goods. He's forced to pay for his own food. But in this rented apartment, he is chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. So so Paul's freedom has been stripped away. And you got to remember what a blow that would be to Paul. Because what was it that Paul lived for when it comes to ministry? What was Paul's heartbeat? Well, Paul tells us that his heartbeat was he longed to preach Jesus in places where he'd never been preached before. Paul wanted to go to new areas and preach the gospel where the gospel hadn't been preached. We also know from Acts that Paul liked to revisit churches that he had planted and try to strengthen their faith and build them up in the Lord. And so Paul was the sort of missionary who never, he never had grass grow underneath his feet. He was always on the move, always going to new areas, always revisiting churches. But for two years, at least, that's this Roman imprisonment, for two years he's in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, unable to travel, not able to do what he loves so much, so Paul's going through this period of time where what he can do is sorely limited. There's a lot of things in this season in Paul's life that he could not do. But there were things that he could do. And that's, that's what I love about Paul's life. What could Paul do during this two-year imprisonment? Well, he could write letters. And so that's what he did. Paul wrote letters to churches. And Paul wrote letters to individual Christians to try to build them up in their walk with the Lord. We know from Acts 28 that during this imprisonment, Paul was allowed to receive visitors. And so Paul constantly had people coming to see him. And he had opportunities to share the gospel with folks who came to visit and opportunities to build people up in the faith as they came to visit him. So just, uh, just as we get started, one great lesson to learn from Paul's life. There will be seasons in your life where you won't be able to do the things you like to do. There will be seasons in life when you might not be able to get up and go the way you once were able to get up and go. There might be seasons in life when you can't embark on the sorts of ministry that you once really loved to do. 
there will be seasons of life where what you can do will be limited. But in every season of life, there are things that you can do. In every season of life, there are ways that you can serve God. So that's just a real simple lesson from Paul. He's a prisoner. There's lots of wonderful things he can't do, but there are things Paul can do. And one of the wonderful things he did that still benefits the church today is he wrote this letter to the church of Colossae. This is a relatively young church. They've been there for probably a little less than 10 years. And Paul is writing to a church that is under attack. False teachers have come into this area and they're trying to undermine their faith by trying to undermine the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. In other words, these false teachers were teaching a much diminished Jesus. They would say, yeah, Jesus is great, you need Jesus, but they would not teach that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. They would not teach that Jesus is the one in whom dwells the fullness of deity bodily. They're they're teaching a lesser Jesus, and they were teaching a different salvation. They were saying Jesus is an important step into the spiritual life, but he's just a step. Jesus is just one of the rungs on the ladder to the real deep things of God. But there's so much more out there they were teaching the Colossians. Maybe a good way to think of it would be like this. Let's say that you decided you're going to take your kids or your grandkids on a trip to Disney World. And so you go online and you get just basic Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom tickets. You go to Magic Kingdom and you spend about two-thirds of your time waiting in line and the kids are crying all day because they all want a pair of mouse ears and you're not going to spend forty dollars on mouse ears and the food's so expensive you get two plates and you split it in half to feed everybody and by the end of the day everybody's in tears and everybody's exhausted and you have to load everybody back up in the car and you have to drive all the way back home well that's one way to go to Disney World or you can go to Disney by paying for one of their deluxe packages where you get a park hopper pass and you can go to all the different parks and you can get a fast pass where you don't have to wait in line and there's packages you can buy where everybody gets a set of mouse ears wonderful photo ops right and you can even stay at a resort right there on site so you can go to Disney with the base package or you can go to Disney with the deluxe package well the false teachers were telling these Christians that all they had was the base package they, they knew about Jesus but They had just barely entered into the spiritual life. So they're coming into town going, wait a second. You haven't had an encounter with an angel yet? You haven't had a vision of heaven? Well, don't you know if you would just apply all of these extra Old Testament laws, and if you would debase yourself, if you would deprive your body of enough pleasures, you could get yourself in a position where you could experience the deep things of God. And Paul is writing this letter to debunk all of that. Jesus is not just a piece of the spiritual pie. Jesus is everything. Jesus is not just the entry point of the Christian life. Jesus is the essence of the Christian life. It's not just that we need Jesus to start this and then we move on from there to better things. Jesus is the goal of it. Jesus is the essence of it. Jesus is the meaning of it. And so Paul is writing this letter to remind them 
of the sufficiency of what we have in Christ. One of the phrases he uses in this letter is that in him we are complete. Everything we need for life and godliness is ours in Christ. That, that's where we've been. Now as we come to chapter 3, there's going to be a little bit of a shift in the letter. So the first two chapters have all been about laying out who Jesus is and what we have through faith in him. Okay, so the focus has been on the truths, the undergirding truths of the Christian life. And the second half of chapter 2, Paul gave warnings. He said things in the second half of chapter 2 like, um, let no one take you captive through empty philosophy. Or uh, let no one judge you on matters of food or drink or days. So he's, he's been laying out truth and he's been giving, giving warnings to protect those truths. But now as we come to chapter 3, Paul's going to start turning to the exhortation part of the letter. And what I mean by that is he's now going to start getting into, based on those truths, how then should we live? So based on who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, where we stand before God through faith in Jesus, how are we now supposed to live? And, and this is, if you're familiar with your New Testament, this is the way most of our New Testament books are laid out. So most New Testament letters go from doctrine to duty. Most New Testament letters start with gospel truth. Here's what God has done for you. Here's where you stand before God. And based on those truths, we're then told how to live. But that order is absolutely crucial. Because the Christian life does not work the other way. The Christian life does not begin with... Here's how you should live. Here's what you need to do. Here's, here's how you need to behave. And once you do all this stuff, then you can get your right standing with God. The Christian life works the other way. So now that Paul has laid this solid foundation of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in the gospel, he's now going to move into how we should now live. So chapter 3 is where the exhortation part of the letter begins. It's broken down really in two clean chapters, four clean chapters. First two on doctrine and then the last two he's going to shift into duty. And, and the way the next chapter and a half is going to work is Paul is going to hit on just about every area of life that you can imagine. Because Paul is wanting to make the point that once you get who you are in Christ, once you have put your trust in the Jesus of the Bible, that faith then bleeds out into every single area of your life. So Paul's going to say, if your trust is in Jesus, there's a new mindset that we have now. We, we see life from a different angle than we did before. We have a different focus and a different goal in life. That's going to be the first four verses. And then based on this new mindset, there's a new practical way that we live. We live our lives putting off some things and putting on some things. And then Paul's going to say that based on what you, you are and what Christ has done for you, there's a way we're supposed to treat each other in church life. So within the community of Christians, there's a, a, a way we're supposed to behave in those relationships. And, Paul's going to say, there's a way that our family life is supposed to look, look like now. There's something you're called to as a husband. There's something you're called to as a wife. There's something you're called to as a parent. There's something you're called to now as a believing child. There's a way we're supposed to behave on the job, a way employees are supposed to act toward their bosses, and a way employers are supposed to act toward their employees. 
And there's a way we're supposed to engage with unbelievers. And he's, so, so do you see how Paul's going to say, now that you've found new life in Jesus, this new life is not compartmentalized. This new life that you have in Jesus, it bleeds out and it affects absolutely every nook and cranny of your life. So that's where he's going to go over the next chapter and a half. So he's, he's going to start this morning by focusing in on the, the renewed mindset that we have now as followers of Jesus. So if your Bible's open to Colossians 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now there are three headings I want to work through this morning. Number one, we have been raised up with Christ. Look up. We have been raised up with Christ. Look up. Paul starts it by saying, if then you were raised with Christ. And I've mentioned before, when Paul says if then, it's, it's like he's saying since. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. It means you have been raised with Christ. He's been talking about this a lot over the last 15 verses. Go back to chapter 2, verse 20. So chapter 3, verse 1 says you were raised with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, therefore, if you died with Christ, you died with Christ, and you were raised with Christ. So what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about our union with Christ. Go back up to chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, we were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see how Paul keeps beating that drum. Christian, you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. It's like, it's like when you were saved, when you put your trust in Jesus, God spiritually super glued you together with Christ. Your life, your soul was fused together with Jesus. And now every spiritual blessing you have comes because of that fusion. So your sins are forgiven because you've been fused together with Jesus. Your record of sins, Paul said earlier, your record of sins was nailed with Jesus to the cross. That doesn't the Bible say that, that the wages of sin is death? I'm a sinner. Don't I get death for my sin? You do. But what's happened now is you were fused together and, and you died with Christ. So that the old you has died... And Paul is saying, a new you has been raised to life. Notice even the way he says that. Paul says, you were raised. Notice how that's passive. You were raised. You didn't, get this Christian, you didn't raise yourself. You didn't bring yourself back to life spiritually. It's not that you figured out the this, this certain revival service to go through, or you figured out the right prayer to pray to bring yourself to life. You did it. You were raised. That means God graciously acted upon you. 
The God who made you acted on you and He brought your spirit to life. And when God acted upon you, the old you died and a new you came into existence. Here's the way Paul says it in Galatians. You know this verse, but notice how he he words it. Paul says, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now pause there for a minute. So there, there is an I who has already been crucified with Christ. There is, there is an I who doesn't live anymore. There's a me who has died. But Paul continues in verse 20 and says, But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, so there's an I that lives now too. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's a new I, there's a new me that lives now, and this new me lives by faith in Jesus. So the old me who lived in sin and who lived in selfishness, the old me who lived in unbelief, that me has died. And God has brought to life a new me that has new appetites and new hungers, and new desires, and this new me that God has raised up by joining me to Jesus, this new me now lives for Christ. And if you're a Christian, this is what has happened to you. So, so get, make sure you get this. So yes, Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. There is no Christianity if you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead. But it's more than that. Christians aren't just people who believe Jesus rose from the dead. Christians are people who have been joined to Christ in His resurrection. Because Christ rose from the dead, in our union with Him, we now have new spiritual life. The old us has died. Okay, so if that's true, if this is genuine, not just some sort of myth, if the old me has died and there is a new me now, shouldn't this new me have different goals in life than the old me? Shouldn't this new me live with a different mindset than the old me lived with? And Paul's going to say, yes, it should. If there is a new you, there is a new focus. So what's the new focus? Look at what Paul says. Here's what the new you lives with. Paul says, seek those things which are above. So you've been raised with Christ... And here's what being raised with Christ brings with it. Seek those things. Seek means pursue. Run after. And it's in a tense that means keep on doing it. Keep on seeking the things that are above. Because we all understand that we seek after the things that matter to us. Think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 where where Jesus says, Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't spend your life worrying about tomorrow. Don't spend your life worrying about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or the clothes that you're going to wear. And then do you remember how Jesus closes that little section? Jesus says, because it's after all those things that unbelievers seek. In other words, those are the things that dominate the minds of unbelievers. They're consumed with the here and now. All they see and all they know are temporary things. So they live their lives for the temporary. But Paul is saying here, as people who have been made alive in Christ, we realize there's more to life than what we can see with our eyes. There's something bigger going on than what we can touch and taste and feel. 
So we know there, there are deeper heavenly realities. And so Paul says, you seek after those things that are above. That means we are living by and we are living for heavenly realities. We're living for heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. We're living for the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of men. We're living for the eternal, not the temporary. We're living for eternal treasure, not temporary treasure. So we're seeking after something different because we're a different person now. And that's why Paul ends the verse by saying, here's the main heavenly thing we seek. Paul says, we seek those things which are above. Who's above? We seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So when Paul says, when Paul says, seek the things that are above, what's the main above thing that we're seeking here? The main above thing we're seeking isn't streets of gold and pearly gates. The main above thing we're seeking is Christ. Paul says, seek the things above because that's where Christ is seated. And get that word is. That's where Christ is right now seated. He is there. This, this Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead, he is right now this moment seated at the right hand of God. Now the, the right hand is the place of honor and it is the place of authority. So to say Jesus is at the right hand of God is to say, first, Jesus is honored. Jesus is the crown jewel of heaven. And then to say Jesus is at the right hand is to say Jesus is the one in authority. He's the ruler of heaven. He's the one who shares authority in heaven with God the Father. And he is seated there. And he's seated there. The, the writer of Hebrews drives this point home. He is seated at the right hand of the Father because he has finished his work. Listen to how Hebrews says it. Hebrews 10, 12 says of Jesus. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work is finished. The, the law had been kept. Righteousness had been won. Our sin debt had been paid in full. He is seated at the right hand of God above. That's where our Savior is, that's where our King is, that's where our eternal home is. So Paul is saying, that's where our focus is. We live by His laws, we live for His purposes, we delight in His worship, we seek the things that are above. Okay, but that's kind of vague. Can you give any more specific language, Paul, on what it means to seek the things that are above? He, he does. Look at the next phrase in verse 2. He just kind of restates the same point. Paul says, set your mind on things above. So what does it mean to seek the things above? It means to set your mind on things above. It all begins with our minds. We seek the right things by setting our minds on the right things. So what we think about, what we meditate on, is what determines the direction of our lives. So if my mind is constantly occupied with temporary things, if I'm constantly filling my mind with the values and the ideologies of the world, that's going to be the direction of my life. This is Paul in Romans 12 where he says, don't be conformed to this world. How? Paul says, well, be transformed. Okay, that's great. How am I supposed to be transformed, Paul? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Christian, let me just encourage you to be more intentional about what you fill your mind with. What you set your mind on will determine what you seek after. So if it is just constantly, aimlessly surfing through YouTube videos and cycling through social media and looking at secular entertainment and reading secular books, if that's what you set your mind on, then your life is going to go in that direction. So how do we set our mind on things above? By intentionally filling our mind with the right things. You know, there's, there's no command in the Bible that says you have to have a daily quiet time and it has to last this amount of time and it has to be structured this way. There's no command like that in the Bible. But for centuries, Christians have found that to be one of the important tools we use in order to set our mind on things above. We go to the Lord regularly in prayer and we set aside time so that we can thoughtfully read through Scripture. And we meditate on what we're reading. Meditate just means I take some truth about God and I turn it over in my mind. And I chew on it. And I delight in it. And I praise God for it. This is, this is one of the helpful uses of good Christian music. I, to, I help set my mind on the right things. I can listen to good music to help with that. And we read good books. And we, we have relationships where we can engage in meaningful conversations. And we regularly gather for corporate worship to help set our minds on the right things. But Paul is saying this seeking after the heavenly things all begins with setting my mind on the right things. Be intentional about what you fill your mind with. And I should add, it's only as we set our mind on things above that our lives will really matter here below. It is only as we set our mind on things above that our lives will matter here below. Because when Paul says set your mind on things above, Paul's not saying ignore the world and just daydream about heaven all day. This isn't some weird form of escapism. What Paul is saying is, live your life in light of what's really true. Christ is king. That's really true. The, the way C.S. Lewis said it is, you will never meet a mere mortal. You live under the reality that every single person you meet is an eternal soul who's going to live forever somewhere. You live under the reality that this life is temporary and everything you're tempted to live your life for is temporary. And so you live your life for the things that are above, and that's the way we live in a way now that actually matters. I just referred to C.S. Lewis, you're probably familiar with this quote from Lewis about this issue, where he said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Christian, set your mind on things above. Here's the second thing. You have died with Christ. Don't look down. Look at the last half of verse 2 and end of verse 3. Paul says, set your mind on things above, 
not on things on the earth. For you died. So this is the opposite. What's the opposite of setting my mind on things above? Well, the opposite would be setting my mind on things of the earth. Paul says, don't set your mind on things of the earth. Now, I need to make sure we're clear on what Paul's not saying. That does not mean you can't spend any time engaged in the things in this physical world. He doesn't mean that. We know Paul doesn't mean that because he spends the rest of chapter 3 telling us how to live in this physical world. He spends the rest of chapter 3 telling us how we're to engage in work and how we're to parent our kids and how we're to spend time in our marriages and how we're to treat other people and how we're to pursue unbelievers. So he spends the rest of chapter 3 telling us how to live in this world. So he's clearly not saying, don't get your hands dirty with the things of the world. Stay detached from all of that. No, no. Paul wants us to live well in everything we do in this earth. But what he's saying is, the way we live well with the things of this world is by focusing on heavenly reality. So in my marriage, and in my parenting, and in my relationships at work, and in the relationships with unbelieving neighbors, I engage in all that with a clear view that there is more to this life than what I can see with my eyes. In particular, the earthly things that Paul is telling us not to focus on, he drills down into in verse 5. Look at verse 5, chapter 3. Paul says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth. So what are the earthly things that he's telling us not to set our minds on? Put to death your members which are on earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what Paul's saying is, don't set your mind on the idols of this world. When he says, don't set your mind on the earth, Paul's just saying, don't live your life for the idol of sex. Don't live your life for the idol of greed. Don't live your life for the idol of position or fame or popularity. Why shouldn't I live for those things? Did you notice how he started verse 3? Here's why you can't live for those things. Verse 3. For you died. That's a pretty blunt way to say it, isn't it? When did you die, Christian? You died when Jesus died. When you believed, God fused you together with Christ and the old you died. So what, what was the old me known for? How did the old you live? Do you remember how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, here's how we once lived. We once walked, Paul says, we once walked according to the course of this world. In other words, the old me lived by just marching to the beat of the world's drum. It's almost like uh, the picture of tubing down a river where you get in your tube and you just then go wherever the current of the river takes you. And Paul's saying that's how we used to live our lives. We used to live our lives, we were just carried along by the stream of this fallen culture. Whatever our culture said was important is what we thought was important. But that old you has died. The you who was ruled by sin, the you whose heart was hostile to God, the you who was in love with this world, that you is gone now. I heard a, a pastor tell the story of two girls, two sisters he knew, who once were very much carried along by the course of this world. They were from a wealthy family, they kind of circulated in the upper echelons of life, but they lived 
to party. And they, they embraced everything you might think of that goes with the party lifestyle. The drunkenness and the drugs and the debauchery and the sexual immorality. And that, that was life to them. And then God saved them. They heard the gospel and they believed and, and their lives were radically turned around. And not long after these two sisters were saved, they got an invitation in the mail from one of their former friends inviting them to one of these highbrow parties. And it had an RSVP card in with the invitation. And so those sisters took that RSVP card and they wrote on it, we regret to inform you that we won't be able to attend because we recently died. And then they sent it back to the person who sent them the card. And the point that they were making was they had died to who they used to be. The, the girls who once loved that kind of lifestyle and lived for that kind of lifestyle didn't exist anymore. Those girls had died. They, they had been made new. They had been brought to life and had new life now in Christ. And, and so Paul is saying, Christian, don't set your mind. You have died to that. Don't live your life setting your mind on the things that you've died to in Christ. So you have died with Christ, don't look down. Here's the last thing. Number three, we have been hidden with Christ. Look ahead. Look at the end of verse three. Paul says, this is real. This is true for you if you're in Christ. Verse three, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is that's not just theoretical. That is really your spiritual condition right now. Your body might be sitting on a pew at 1505 Hilliard Avenue. But your spirit is fused together. You are hidden with Christ in God. In that language, you're hidden with Christ. It implies a couple things. One, it implies security. You are hidden with Christ. Where no enemy can harm you, where no foe can touch you, you are hidden with Christ. And did you notice the, uh, the double layers of it? You are hidden with Christ in God. This is very similar language to what Jesus used. Stephen read it earlier. Listen to John 10 again and notice that sort of double layer again. John 10 verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He holds his sheep in his hand which is then, which is then held in the hand of God the Father. And the idea is who out there could ever have the strength to first pry open the hand of God the Father, and then to follow that by prying open the hand of God the Son in order to touch your soul. And Jesus is saying you are secure. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. How in the world, how in the world do you shake somebody who has that sort of security? If you live in the reality of that, that your life, your real life, the life that you have that's going to matter forever is hidden. It is tucked away with Christ in God. How do you affect somebody who has that sort of security? John Chrysostom was one of the early church leaders. This is fourth century or so. And uh, when he was serving in Constantinople, he sort of ran afoul 
of the government authorities there because of his preaching. He preached that Jesus is Lord and that even the government leaders needed to repent and bend their knee to Jesus. And the leaders finally got where they had heard about enough of it. They were tired of his preaching about Christ. They were tired of his calls to repent. And so they, they hauled him in before the governing authorities. And, and Chrysostom was standing before the uh, Roman emperor Eudoxia. And she began to threaten him. First, she threatened, let me make sure I read this so I don't get it wrong. She threatened that she would banish him. And he responded, you can't banish me, for this world is my father's house. She said, then I'll kill you. And he said, you can't, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. She said, well, I'll take away all your treasure. And he said, you can't, for my treasure's in heaven and my heart is there also. So she said, I'll drive you away from your friends and family until you have no one left. And he said, you can't. For I have a friend in heaven who you can't separate me from. How, how do you separate or how do you, how do you threaten somebody who has that kind of security? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's security, but it also implies concealment. Your life is hidden with Christ, meaning you can't see it right now. You don't look like all that much right now. I'm just telling you. You don't look all that impressive. I don't look out in this congregation and think, there's a bunch of people who have died with Christ and been raised to life. I see it all over their faces. You're, it's hidden. You're hidden with Christ. What's true of you, what's real for you, it is right now hidden with Christ in heaven. But it's not going to stay hidden forever. Because look at how he concludes this section. He says, you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, there's two parts to that. First, he makes the point that one day, Jesus is going to appear. Right now, he's alive and well, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he is out of sight. But Paul is saying, one day, Christ is going to appear. This Jesus who died in your place and who conquered the grave is physically, visibly going to appear and every eye is going to see him. Christ, he says, will appear. It, it makes me think of, we just last Sunday night looked at the story in the Old Testament, some of you will remember this, um, where the evil woman has risen to the throne of Israel. Her name is Queen Athaliah. And she is a usurper to the throne. She does her best to wipe out the whole line of David. And she thinks she's done that. She thinks that she has killed everyone in the line of David. But what she doesn't know is there's one last descendant in the line of David who has been hidden away. His name is Joash. And for years, Joash is out of sight. He is tucked away, hidden from view in the temple. All everybody sees is Athaliah, this evil queen. Everyone suffers under Queen Athaliah. Everyone languishes under Queen Athaliah. And it seems like she's the only authority there is. But all the while, the true king was there. He was just out of sight until the day came when Joash stepped out of the temple and he stepped out into public view and everyone saw him and he claimed the throne that rightfully belonged to him. Well, that's the picture that he's giving us here. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Christ himself right now is hidden from public view. He's seated at the right hand of God. But one day this Christ 
is going to appear. And before you look at that last phrase, notice what he calls Christ there. He says, when Christ, who is our life, appears. Who is, who is Jesus to you, Christian? Who is Christ to us? Well, Paul says, Christ is our life. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means your life is bound up with Jesus. He's the giver of your physical life. He's the source of your spiritual life. He's the securer of your eternal life. Life for you is Jesus. He's the uh, vine and we're the branches. Everything we need comes from his hand. This is Paul saying in Philippians, for to me, this is the Christian mantra, by the way. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Life for us is Christ. Everything for us is Christ. The purpose of life is Christ. Didn't, didn't Paul say earlier in Colossians that all things were made by him and through him and for him? I exist for Jesus. He's the source of my life. He's the goal of my life. He's the essence of my life. This is why, this is why if your faith is really in Christ, you will, you, you probably already have, but if you haven't, you will one day have a point that comes in your life when it feels like all of your hopes, all of your dreams vanish. There, there's something that you were focused on, something you were living for, some dream you had, and that dream just evaporates. It's gone in the blink of an eye. Some relationship maybe disappears. Some job you had, some business you've invested in that you care so much about is taken away. Or you go see the doctor after them drawing blood work and he says, it's worse than we ever imagined. And you realize that your health is gone. And you, you are absolutely rock bottom in the dust. And from the dust you pray and say, Lord, I have nothing left, but I have Christ. And he is the strength of my life and my portion Forever I have nothing, but I have Christ, so I have everything that I need. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means we are people who realize that Christ is life. So even if everything else is taken away, we have the essence of what we were made for. We have the essence of what life is all about. So he's going to appear, and what's going to happen on that day when he appears? We're right now hidden with Christ in God. But notice the last part of verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I just said, you don't look very glorious right now. Your spiritual life is hidden in Christ. You, you've been adopted as a child. Look that way. But on that day, when Jesus steps onto the world's stage in all of his glory... Guess where you and I will be? We'll be there with him, sharing his glory. On that day, what is...